So next week, Jordan is going to follow up on Genesis chapter 3, and he's going to do a better job than I'm going to do tonight. But I have a purpose tonight, and it is to talk about Genesis 3 in two different contexts. One, in the context that I was raised to read it in, and two, in how I'm learning to see that now with my life. And then next week, Jordan's going to take a microscope and take a deep dive into Genesis 3, because today I called him and I was, as I was preparing, and I was like, Jordan, tell me like just some stuff you know about Genesis 3. And an hour later, I was like, let's split this up. I'm not going to try to repeat any of this. I'm just going to share some snippets, and then I'm going to talk about shame from how I've understood it out of the word. And he was like, that sounds really good. And he's very kind to me, um, but I could sense a little sigh of relief that he, I wasn't presenting the content. One thing that he said to me that was really cool when he preached about Genesis 1 um, that he reiterated in Genesis 3, he said, this whole genre of origin stories goes from the beginning of uh, Genesis to the flood. That there were cultures that existed before a lot of this was, was written down by Hebrew people who had similar origin stories from um, people disappointing their gods and their gods getting angry and the rest of it is their gods chasing them around trying to kill them to, and floods being part of that to um, the very beginning, like when he talked about Temu. And so Jordan started talking to me, and he was like, oh, you need to hear about the, the creation myth of Gilbermeth. Gildamesh. Thank you, Ryan. And I was like, what is it? And he started to share it, and, he, and then he goes, well, it's actually the one, it's the one that's closest to the Judeo- Judeo-Christian, like it's the one that's closest to what the Hebrew people would have drawn from, but there are so many of them. And the reason that I've been asking Jordan to do that is because how we approach this is really important. We don't need to approach it discounting what it is. A library of books written by 50 people over 1,500 years that continues to make its way back into society and through cultures throughout the world. It's, it's doing something, and I've said time and again, and I'll continue to say, it's leading us to Jesus. It's leading us to Christ. But if we, if we approach it like a science book, if we approach it like a history book, if we approach it like anything other than how it was written, we miss the point. I remember years ago, I was preaching a sermon about Jonah, and my big point in the middle of the sermon was, if you need Jonah to have literally happened, you're missing the truth. And if you need it to have literally not happened, you're also missing the truth. What I've learned from more in-depth study with that is we don't necessarily have to straddle a fence. We don't have to agree to disagree. There's ways to approach this library of books that allow us to understand a contextual realization of what was happening. So, Hebrew people 
enslaved in Babylon, exiled to that place, begin to write their origin story of their God who spoke to Abraham the first recorded time probably in history that one of these gods actually spoke to a person. And they start to write down their origin story of what it looks like in their drawing from others. But their God is different, as you've learned in Genesis 1. This God calls everything good. This God doesn't rip things in half. This God isn't violent. This God walks with people in the garden. This God is doing something different. And the reason this is happening is because these people writing this down are wanting to make the distinction about how their God is behind all of the other stuff. So you see these references to a God who made the stars when stars were believed to be the gods, to a God who made the sun. And, and, and you see this drawing and this purpose to a deeper, more freeing, peaceful God who's calling everything good. That's important. That is important. Because when I was younger, as I've said before and we've laughed about, I would present people with the good news of Jesus Christ like this. I have good news for you. You, my friend, are the scum of the earth. You are a dirty, rotten, no good, stinky, terrible choice-making person who is condemned. But Jesus came to make this God who's chasing you around and is ready to punish you happy. And that was because I started my gospel message in Genesis chapter 3. Now, we've taken like three weeks to start in the right place. And so as I share with you some of this out of Genesis chapter 3, hopefully our perspectives can be a little different and we can see it from a new place. And so God made everything. God called it good. Israel says, this is our origin story, drawing from other origin stories, but making the point that their God is different because of that one simple fact. Their God is good, and He gives His power away. And then we read this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We read that and we say Satan. These people weren't writing Satan. They would have written Satan down. They wrote the serpent because in these stories, in these, in these origin genres, the serpent was the crafty one. The serpent was the one who brought evil into the world. The serpent was the one seeking to destroy it all. Snakes kind of had a, had a bad rap back then. They still do. And I still don't touch them. Then I run out of the room. Probably because of Genesis chapter 3. And they're all poisonous in my mind. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, 
lest you die. And so I was, I, I've always taught this. I've always been brought up to learn this, that, you know, it was the man's job to protect her, and where is he? I was also taught that why in the heck is she engaging with the serpent who's trying to take it all down? Why is this conversation happening? She should have never been in that conversation, and you shouldn't converse with the devil. And I, I do want to reiterate that. I don't think you should have a coffee date with the devil, but there's a reality happening here in this origin story that is a little less literal. There's, there's something happening. God created this space and he gave it to humans, and now something is trying to destroy it. And the people who are there are willing to have that conversation with whatever it is. And the question that I get when I read this is, why? Well, why are they even having this conversation? And then the serpent says, you will not surely die if you eat this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. We can pick that apart. We can say, here's what Adam should have done. Here's what Eve should have done. Did you know snakes today have vestigial hips, which shows that at some point in time they had legs, and so science book. We can do all of that if we want, or we can say, how is this leading me to Jesus? Because we have a God who gave all of the power away to people and said, keep this place at peace, and care for it, and watch it, and rule over it, and I will meet your needs, and I will care for you, and exist, exist in this place. And it's like we're little babies being born into the world, and that's what we know. This world is here for us. It is here to keep us safe. If we stub our toe, mom or dad will sweep us up and grab us. And so, yes, there might be pain in this world, but there's also protection, and there's healing, and there's safety unless you've been through abusive situations or you were born into a family that couldn't take care of you and when you bumped the table and the coffee spilled on your arm, no one was there to pick you up and sweep you up and so you learn something different about the world. You learn that it's a dangerous place but there's not people there to protect you. And that's what Israel had learned. And so they've been in exile, they've been in slavery, they've been the most beat up, oppressed people in the history of the world and now they're rewriting their story and they're saying this is who our God is and this is how God treats us. When the coffee gets bumped off of the table, He's here to protect us. But just know this, you probably shouldn't desire more power. And in this story, they get presented with, well, if you eat this, you can take a step back. You can be above it all. You can look down on it like God does. You can know the difference between all that's good and all that's evil. You can be in control of that. You can make decisions. You can be like God. You can have power. 
And just like Adam and Eve, I said yes to that. I wanted that too. And when I wanted that power in my life, I ended up climbing that ladder of power. And when I started to climb that ladder and get promotions and do good at my job and, 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 and get better at basketball, I, I inevitably bumped up against people who in order for them to have more, they needed to ensure that I had less. And they took my legs out from under me. They took my knees out from under me. And it seems like that's what the serpent is trying to do. And in that moment, in this story of Adam and Eve getting what they wanted, the knowledge of good and evil, the writers in Hebrew make this really neat little comparison with the word naked. At the end of chapter 2, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. That's the Hebrew word irom, and it means no clothes. And then right in the middle of chapter 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. It's a little switch. It's arom, and it means lacking appropriate covering. So you have some people who were fine. God had called them good. God had said, everything is fine. You are beautiful. You are good. Oh, and by the way, here's the keys to the kingdom. You're in charge. Care for the animals. Be at peace with the animals. Be at peace with the plants. Be at peace with each other. And this thing will work to keep you going. And they were naked. And in that moment of wanting more and getting what they wanted, they see in themselves how far away they are and how different they are from the God who had made them in His own image. And they're embarrassed. How could we have tried to be like this God? He gave us everything. How could we have tried to have more power? How could we have tried to have more than what we're, we were created to have? We were good. It was all good. And so they run away and they try to fix themselves. And I love it. Like when I was 25 years old, I wrote a book on this called Remembering a Forgotten Grace. And I thought I was going to be a best-selling author. And after five people read it and said, that's pretty good. Good job. I realized probably not going to happen for me. But what I learned in the writing of that book about shame was that when you try to become something more than who you are, you end up faking it by sowing some kind of proverbial fig leaf and putting it on yourself. Call it a job, call it money, call it a house with more room so you can put more stuff in it. Whatever you want. You're trying to make yourself look different than you are and that feels terrible. Because it only reinsures and, and supports the idea that you are not enough and you're not good as you are unless this happens. And once they realize that that happened, they hide. I hope no one sees me. I will never preach this sermon and say, 
why are you hiding and saying all of the church is hypocrites because we're all hypocrites, you should be here anyways. That's not the reason. The reason we're hiding is because we tried our best to make ourselves something more. And when we failed, we tried to fake it so that people would think we were successful at becoming the thing we were supposed to do. Welcome to like the diet trend, New Year's resolutions, every book you've ever read that's nonfiction. This is our world. And it was their world too. And then God finds them in this story. He does that little parent thing. Hey guys, where are you? And they come out of hiding. So that's a good choice. They didn't keep hiding. I hope my youngest hears this point. This is that, that's the sermon point for her. And Adam says, we saw that we were naked, so we hid. And God's reply to them in this, this story, the God who called everything good, the God who, 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 who makes everything work for them, who named them rulers of creation, like, like they had walked through the wardrobe of Narnia and they're now kings and queens from the moment they came out of the dust. God says to them, this isn't going to work. A few thousand years, I'm going to have to take all this out on my son so I can be happy with you. Until then, keep writing the Old Testament. No, that was a joke. God says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree? Who told you that you weren't good? Who told you that you needed to be more than what I made you to be? Who told you that along this line you could somehow fake it and sow fig leaves? Who moved you toward this space where you're hiding in a room afraid to come out in public around people who say they believe the same crazy stuff that you do? Who told you that you weren't worthy to be in the company of humans? Who told you that you couldn't exist in my creation as you are? Who told you that? Who told you that you were lacking appropriate covering? Who told you that? That's what God says. And then they blame. Because that's what we do, right? It's not my fault. That's called deflection. Church has done that for years. I was raised in that. Like, let's not talk about things that I'm going through. Let's point at someone who's worse. And then when everyone's looking over there, it, it, I'm not as bad as that. We, we always do that. That's normal. That's, that's the reason I think we get involved in politics. Hey, ladies, I need you to sit down, okay? Okay, thanks for telling me that. Um, that's the reason I think we get involved in politics. It's a deflection. It's a, it's, a, it's a way to look over here and we don't have to think about our own stuff. All the while, we have this story. And I'm excited for Jordan to go deep with this story. But here's the point I want to make to you, and I'm going to preach at you now. I think there's one point in this story. I think it's a beautiful, ancient origin story that draws from so many things, but I think God put His hands in it when these people were writing it. 
because it's different than every other origin story in its time. This God is good somehow. This God wants a relationship. He's not an unmoved mover. And when people, people try to take his throne from him, he doesn't try to kill them or rip them in half or chase them around. He says, who told you that you needed to do that? Who told you that you weren't good? Who told you that you weren't good? Why did you participate? Why did I participate in even spiritual systems that would build someone up so high that we could just watch them fall and bleed out in front of all of us? Why do we do that to each other? Who told you that you needed to go up one more step in order to find peace? I told you. And you told me. And we listened to the serpent. And we came up with a whole theology about it and a whole philosophy about it that says you're not where you need to be, but you can become who you need to be if you eat from these trees. Three simple trees. Five minutes a day. You can be who God wants you to be. And even way back then, those ancient people, without even saying that was the devil as we think about it, they were not thinking about that at all. They said there's something out there that's trying to make you not start in Genesis 1. There's something out there that's trying to make you start your story in Genesis chapter 3. Where you open the book up and you say, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Christianity at its core says the opposite of that. I was not raised to believe it said the opposite of that. I was raised to believe that Christianity at its core says that I'm the scum of the earth, but Jesus can make God happy with me. At its core, Christianity says who you are is good. And the thing that's wrong is that someone told you you were naked. And you believed that story. If I was the devil and I wanted to take somebody out, this is where Jordan will disagree with me. If I was the devil and I wanted to take somebody out, I would try to get them to write their story wrong from the beginning. And so tonight, I am asking you to repent and to say, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry, Jesus, 
that I didn't or that I haven't believed the things about myself that you told me are true, that I haven't believed reality, that you made me good, and that if God says the door is blue, the door is blue. We just read a whole chapter about how God speaks things into existence. If the door looks red to you, but God says it's blue, it's blue. If you feel terrible and God says you're good, you're good. And so we're not dealing with a story where two people mess it up for everybody. We're dealing with a story where we read ourselves into this and we understand that God made it a certain way and we really struggle to perceive it in the way that God made it. And unless our eyes can begin to be opened to see things as God sees them, including ourselves, we never step into housing, we never step into beautification, we never step into the things we've stepped into here as a church. If we don't call it like God sees it, all that's left for us to do is wait. What we'll learn in a few weeks is that the redeeming process for Jesus isn't about you being restored to God. It's way bigger than that. It's about this whole place, all of it, being brought back to the way that God created it to be, and us, who will stop believing that we are lacking appropriate covering and embrace the reality of who God made us to be. Because that God who made us to be good, in John 1, Jesus says, that was me. So Jesus isn't fixing a problem. Jesus is reinstating a fact. He's reinstating a reality. And that reality is to be embraced. It is to be believed. And it is to be held. Because the moment it gets taken away from you, you will spend all your time and energy and resources, your church will spend all its time and energy and resources trying to get back to a place that you never left. Because Jesus, who created it all, said it's good. And then He came back to make sure that we knew that what He did, it will be finished. And our job is to say yes to that. And that's what we're doing. Sorry, I was yelling. Jesus, thank you that we can be here tonight. Thank you that we can worship. And we just repent of believing anything other than the reality that you created. And we align ourselves with your word that leads us to Jesus that says we are good. And I repent on behalf of all of us for believing we are not good. And I repent on behalf of all of us for believing we can mess you, that up. And I thank you that you never left us, but you're trying to bring us back to correct thinking so that we can understand who you are, who we are, and what we're supposed to be and do in this world. In Jesus' name.